Welcome to Fanatsu, Guahusi Victoria Lola Liangaran. I'll be your host for today's program. I'm joined with two incredible men who have taken on the enormous task of studying our economy. Uh, today we're joined by uh, Mr. Joseph Bradley, the Senior Vice President and Chief Economist and Business Continuity Officer with the Bank of Guam, and Wayne Chargaloff, who is an educator and has his bachelor's from the University of Guam in finance and economics. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're uh, happy to be here. Happy to be here. Well, this is probably just as uh, an advocate for independence and uh, the chairperson of our task force, or co-chairperson of our task force, the economy is one of the hottest topics on in terms of political status. Almost always, uh, we are asked questions about if Guam were to achieve independence, how would it be able to economically sustain itself? And so uh, one of the documents that we quote rather regularly is a report that uh, Mr. Bradley published in two 2000, uh, looking at uh, the impacts on the economy of all three political status options, which are independent, statehood, and free association. And so one of my favorite quotes is that uh, you had mentioned that independence, while it comes with great risk, actually presents the most opportunity to the island in terms of economic development and growth. And so I wanted to talk a little bit with you about that today, especially since it's been 16 years since mm -hmm. that report was published and see if that's still a position that you would take and if there has been changes in in terms of over the last 16 years has there has the island reached a point where that is no longer the case or are there more possibilities on the horizon yes <laughs> all of it um, <laughs> no there have been a number of changes which would perhaps attenuate the the economic circumstances under any of the three status options. But I don't think those changes have been so large that it would uh, make the, the uh, outcomes um, substantially different. With independence, there are a number of risks. And in the study that I uh, performed back in the beginning of this century, um, I was asked to make projections on the three status options one year in the future and five years in the future. And under those constraints, um, independence was by far the least favorable in terms of economic performance and economic development. However, that is because there are so many really radical shifts in changing, moving from an unincorporated territory or what's more accurately a colony, to um, any of the other three options. But independence would be the, the greatest shift by far. Um, it's not exactly as if Guam would be kind of out there on its own, but there are a number of factors that uh, increase the risks, particularly in the first several years. I, When I was performing the study, I 
asked to be given the latitude to look at circumstances 25 years in the future and was told that that was not a part of my contract. Hmm. <laughs> if you had been allowed to do that, what would that change in terms of your conclusion? Well, I think there'd be a lot more time for the adjustments to be made. I mean, in the first year of independence, there's chaos. You have, uh, for all intents and purposes, you have to create a national political structure and along with it an economic structure that uh, will meld with the, the political system to make a functional, really a functional society. Um, even after five years, those changes would be ongoing. I think that under the umbrella of the United States, that there is a lot of latitude and a lot of uh, mistakes are pretty easily forgiven, whereas under independence, that would not be the case. And so mistakes would, early on, would be very serious, um, much more serious than they would be today. Could you provide an example of such a mistake? Um, and how it can be avoided, so to speak. Because I believe that for most people, this idea of chaos is what doesn't even allow them to enter the conversation. So a lot of people fear independence because they believe that immediately the island would be sort of out there on its own mm -hmm. and that there would be political corruption and, and chaos and that we wouldn't be able to support ourselves. Um, and so considering that that's kind of where people are coming from, what could you say about that? Well, I think that that is certainly a set of risks that uh, come up front with the shift from uh, our status today to an independent status. Uh, one of the major risks is going to be in terms of uh, government okay. finance, fiscal policy. Um, right now we're under the mirror code of the um, Internal Revenue Service under Section 31 of the Organic Act, and that gives us a very stable and very well-tested set of laws and regulations. Um, since 1986, Guam's been eligible to delink from the Internal Revenue Code, and we have not done so. And the primary reason that we haven't done so is that the Internal Revenue Code and adjudication under that code um, set so many precedents that there's uh, more certainty about mm. what would happen. Whereas if we were just to kind of suddenly have no tax regime and have to build our own from scratch, there's a long and involved process. And in the meantime, we still have to provide police protection, fire protection, and uh, public safety, uh, other public safety matters, public health, education, and the other amenities that are provided by a government. And I think that in the early years of independence, a lot of those amenities would have to be let go. Um, that the, the kind of the, the requirement that the government would have to run a balanced budget, at least in the early years, would uh, very severely, severely constrain the opportunities that our government has in, in providing services. Um, the, uh, how do I say this? Right now we have uh, over a billion dollars in debt in bond markets. And 
I'm not sure if we would have access to those markets if we were to become independent. I know that um, the freely associated states of Micronesia have not accessed those markets yet. Uh, there is, from my understanding, a plan to do so, but it, there, there's a lot of footwork and legwork that needs to be done before that, and part of that is to develop the fundamental economic and financial statistics that borrowers are going to want to see, just like a bank would want to see if you're coming in to borrow money to buy a house. We want, we want to know more about your background, your ability to generate revenues and, or income, and so forth. And because of that, the, the budgetary process would become a lot more difficult and, well, and perhaps at the same time a, a, a lot easier because there would be far fewer um, demands on the public purse. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that uh, according to international law and the UN Charter in particular, um, any sort of transition between uh, the severe dependency we currently have on the United States and our eventual independence uh, is an obligation on behalf of the U.S., you know, that there be a smooth transition. Mm -hmm. This is something that I remind people that in signing on to the U.N. Charter, uh, the U.S. not only has an obligation to respect the desire for independence, but also to ensure that they don't just sort of exit uh, without really allowing the community to get back on its feet on its own. And so in other um, situations where uh, nations have decolonized and chosen independence, there have been these transitionary periods in which they do receive foreign aid from their foreign colonizers, uh, and they negotiate essentially um, a, this transition period, how long it would last, and how basically over time the the newly independent nation would be able to stabilize itself. Uh, do you think that this is possible for Guam, and does that sort of assuage these fears of chaos? Well, I think that it would to some extent, but um, as we all know, the United States has not done a really good job of releasing its colonies. Uh, there have been the United States has tended more to build uh, systems of government rather than economies. And I think that in many respects that's been the experience of Guam. Um, prior to my arrival here in 1984, the government was the largest employer, the local and federal government was the larger, largest employer of civilians in Guam. And it's only since that time, and really since the, the hotel boom of the 1980s and additional growth since then, that the private sector has kind of taken a, a lead role in the economy. One thing, though, to keep in mind is that as an independent nation, Guam would be eligible for foreign assistance not only from the United States, but from other countries as well. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that kind of uh, tempered the shock in the analysis of independence as a status option. Um, because, I mean, Japan would certainly be willing to help us out. China would be chomping at the bit to help us out. Um, and I think that there are other countries around the world that would um, kind of look favorably and also want to have uh, some degree of access, at least economically and perhaps politically, to, to Guam and to the people of Guam. So then that said, are the risks worth it in terms of the pursuit of independence? So uh, because 
I definitely don't want to perpetuate the fear. Um, I, and I, I definitely want to understand more about the possibilities. So we've been very interested in providing people with tangible solutions that will come from independence mm. to some of our struggles today. Like, I don't want to continue to be acquiring more and more debt. I believe $1 billion in debt is not something that uh, we want to continue to be able to increase. <laughs> so what are some of your thoughts on the possibilities and what we could consider pursuing? Um, good question. <laughs> uh, I think that there are a number of opportunities. I mean, you know, Guam is, has a strategic location for national defense purposes. Well, Guam also has a strategic location for commercial purposes, and that's something that we've never really fully uh, taken advantage of. Um, we have the comfortable stability of the United States backing us up so that our economy is neither allowed to get so uh, poor that we revolt or so rich that we think we don't need the U.S. here anymore. I think it's uh, kept within a fairly narrow band of uh, economic activity. I think that given that, there are a lot of opportunities for Guam, particularly as uh, technologies have developed, communications technologies have developed. I think that we're in a prime location. Uh, we have a number of undersea fiber cables coming into and going out of Guam, and uh, the telecommunications companies that operate here are continuing to build their capacity very quietly. Um, How does the island benefit from that? I mean, in, in terms of if they're doing this quietly, is it only the companies benefiting, or are there ways that an independent Guahan could benefit from that? Well, I think that there are ways that it could benefit. The telecommunications industry is not going to provide a lot of jobs. The jobs that it provides will be good jobs, high-paying jobs with good benefits. But um, say a, a data center may employ 50 people and have revenues of you know, $300 million a year. And of course, a lot of those revenues are offset by costs of the equipment and so forth. But I think that our telecommunications capacity gives us other opportunities. We have a superior deep water harbor. We've got a very good airport. The runway has just been extended to uh, 12,000 feet. And so we can carry heavy lifting aircraft. We have an enormous amount of vacant land, both in the area of the airport and the area of the port. I've always thought that Guam has an opportunity to be a kind of a forward positioning point for goods being transferred from the Americas to the Orient and also, to a lesser extent, from the Orient to the Americas. Um, with the telecommunications capacity, think of what we could do in terms of being an Amazon.com center, where um, we can ship these goods and have them there within hours rather than within weeks. <coughs> um, I think that that would be one of the advantages Guam would have. That also would create a lot more jobs and, again, relatively highly skilled jobs and relatively well-paying jobs. Um, warehousing itself is, I mean, there are people who work in warehouses and some of the jobs are um, uh, low-skilled, but many of the jobs are high-skilled. I mean, running a forklift is not an easy task and it pays a reasonable amount of money as a consequence. Um, 
it also would provide another source of tax revenues for Guam. So combining telecommunications with the availability of land uh, and our really excellent shipping facilities uh, could be one of the opportunities that Guam could avail of itself. What are the obstacles to these opportunities today? And how is it possible to do these things now? Or how is it more possible if we are independent? Well, it is possible to do these things now. I think that we do not yet have the necessary legal structure to do so, that we haven't passed the laws to enable data centers to operate efficiently. We don't have, and one of the first laws for that under independence would be we'd have to have intellectual property protections. Mm-hmm. which, I mean, we're under the U.S. umbrella right now, but without that umbrella, we would have to be a- able to assure um, people who are de- uh, using Guam as a data repository and data processing site uh, that the, that data would be held secure and not open to uh, government perusal or um, competitors' perusal. So we need that. I think we also need to tailor our tax structure to at least encourage the location of these kinds of businesses to Guam. Um, Right now we've got a qualifying certificate program at Gita that has focused almost exclusively on hotels. And tourism has been very, very good to Guam and the qualifying certificate program I think has been a major uh, support for our economic development over the last 45 years or so. I think, though, that we should um, have alternatives. Right now we have two industries, tourism and defense. And both of those have actually been very good in terms of the economic development of Guam. I mean, you're looking out the window at Marine Corps Drive, which would not be there had the Department of Defense not wanted to link Naval Station with Anderson Air Force Base. But with that roadway and with the utilities that accompanied it, accompanied it, the economic development of this island has been along Marine Corps Drive. Mm-hmm. It's only in more recent times that you've had Route 4 and Route 8 and Route 10 and Route 15 um, come of age, so to speak, so that there's more economic development, more housing development uh, along those routes. But still, it's Marine Corps Drive that is the core of our economy. So could that then shift if Guam re-envisioned itself moving forward? Or would you want to keep it along Marine Corps Drive? Well, I think that it would by necessity because that's where the utilities are and that's where the transportation is. One of the major um, arguments you made also in your paper was the use of excess lands, that because so much of the land the military occupies is unused, it does limit our economic growth. So. Um, could you speak a little to that and how um, an independent Guahan would allow for either those lands to be leased formally by the U.S. military or actually used for other industries? Um, I think that there would be um, arrangements that would have to be made with the United States with regard to defense, not only for the bases that we have here now and their serving as kind of a buffer between Asia and the Americas, but also it sets up a situation where we would be having to pay the Department of Defense to defend Guam. Um, one of the things that we would face if there were no military here was that is 
for all intents and purposes, piracy and foreign aggression. Um, there are still pirates in the world, and they still do attack land bases. And um, I think that we would be a plum target for those groups, uh, particularly uh, coming out of some of the islands off of Southeast Asia. Um, I also think that um, Guam is strategic from a military perspective and would be a plum for China, for instance, to uh, just come in and take over. And without a defense superstructure in existence, they'd have no resistance. I mean, the government of Guam is not going to be able to defend the island from um, any kind of military attack. Uh, it really requires a more established defense structure. Uh, with that in mind, I think that we would certainly at least be able to trade off the use of land for defense services. And we may be able to uh, have a net revenue from leasing of lands. I think also, though, that a lot of the land that is held now as idle land would have to be released under that relationship. I think that you know, in the negotiating process, um, Guam's position would have to be, I'm sorry, you can't use all of that. You can't have all of that land that you're not using right now. We need it too. And you'll note that the, the major bases in Guam, Anderson Air Force Base and Naval Station, um, are both sitting on some of the most valuable land in the, on the island. Um, the northern plateau is, used to be Guam's breadbasket, and the harbor is our commercial um, uh, base, if you will. And is it possible under the other two statuses to negotiate that land back, or is this only really possible through independence? Um, I think that any change in the status would have to be a negotiated change. Mm -hmm. um, I think that if we were to go with the route of statehood, that most things would already be predefined for us, and that there would be less latitude for negotiation. I think under the option of free, free association, that I think actually we've already worked quite a bit on free association, but we called it commonwealth. Mm -hmm. um, but I think under free association there'd be more latitude for uh, negotiation, but again it would come with constraints. Um, and in fact, many of those constraints would be very similar to the ones that are faced uh, under independence in terms of defense. Um, we would have, uh, I guess under free association, there would be some other uh, legal and political structures kind of imposed upon Guam. I think also what we've seen with free association in the, the freely associated states of Micronesia, Palau, the FSM, and the Marshall Islands is that the metropolitan power has exercised a great deal more control than was anticipated when um, those nations were released from the trust territoryship. Um, I, the um, I mean, it's it's just a matter of the carrot and the stick. I mean, we're willing to fund you to the tune of umpteen million dollars per year if you allow us to control the purse strings on most of that money. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happened with uh, the Marshals and the FSM, uh, to a lesser extent to Palau. Palau has taken a much different route in its uh, independence or its free association than the other two uh, nation states.
Okay, I think in a little bit in the beginning of uh, your last comment, you had spoken to another thing that people often default to is uh, why sh why can't we just leave things as they are, right? Why isn't status quo an option? And you spoke to the idea that any shift in political status would allow Guam these economic opportunities. And so could you speak a little bit to that, like this idea that the status quo is, as you said, sort of keeping us where we're not sinking, but we're not rising. Yeah, um, yeah I can certainly address that. Now, I am not perfectly familiar with the United Nations Charter, I have to admit that. I've read portions of it, and I've heard a lot more about it. But in terms of decolonization, that is under kind of a separate part of, it's, a, it's under one of the, the um, addenda to the, the main uh, agreement. Um, I think that under that agreement, if I'm not mistaken, it's what, the Committee of 24? The, for, the Special Political and Decolonization Committee is the fourth committee. Oh, okay. And uh, the, the Committee of 24 is within that framework as okay. well. But there is okay. the Special Political and Decolonization Committee, which is called the fourth committee. Okay. Well, I think that in large part, they've defined what status options we have. Mm -hmm. And so we're not signatories to the UN Charter. Why do we have to um, follow their lead on that? Um, I mean, the United States is signatory to the UN Charter, but there are a lot of provisions of that charter that have been kind of disregarded, shall I say? Um, one of the elements of the UN Charter is the non-self-governing places are not to, the cosmopolitan power is not to allow, or the metropolitan power is not to allow um, immigration into non-self-governing places. Yet, here I am. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm by no means the first. There, were, there was immigration into Guam in 1950, 1951, 52. Uh, even though the... the um, constrictions on entry into Guam were still in force. The late 1930s um, closure of Guam is still in force until the early 1960s. Mm -hmm. But Well, and that speaks very much to the current issue with the Davis case in that uh, often critics of Guam's plebiscite will say, well, the UN calls for universal suffrage. But in this particular issue, there have been various um, amendments and resolutions introduced in the UN to respond to the fact that uh, in many cases the administering powers or colonizers have done what would be flooding the ballot, right? So that in the time since the charter was signed, many places like Guam have, uh, have welcomed immigration to the extent that the native community has become almost a minority, well, right? And the, so then, yeah, therefore, the decolonization vote is no longer an act of decolonization if half the people voting or allowed to vote under the premise of universal suffrage are here because of the colonial power. Hmm. And so while that argument has been made, I think Paul Zierzen in particular, he came to a commission on decolonization meeting and said, well, this is illegal because the UN allows for universal suffrage. But on this particular issue, the UN also acknowledged that the more time that has passed, 
uh, and the more immigration into the colonies that have occurred, uh, it's affected the outcome of these plebiscites. And so for the case of Guam, the UN has responded to this in resolutions that basically say that the native vote does matter and that, you know, in allowing for immigration, you basically uh, further the colonization and take away the possibility of decolonization. I, I tend to agree with you on that. Uh, I think that uh, the whole idea of uh, universal suffrage in a self-determination vote is not a very sound notion. Mm -mm. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, I had these discussions back in the late 1980s and early 1990s when I was um, working for the Commission on Self-Determination. Uh, and I had to confess my ignorance, but there were a number of people who were very well schooled in these ideas, and they ex were able to explain them to me. Um, I have had, to some extent, an opportunity for self-determination myself, but many people in Guam, uh, the indigenous residents, um, for all intents and purposes, have not. Mm -hmm. Guam's been colonized since the 1600s, mm -hmm. and um, I don't think that anybody in Guam had ever considered the idea of voting at that point in time. Mm -hmm. um, I think that it's rather novel. The, the, the results of the Dave Davis case uh, fall strictly within the United States Constitution. I don't think that they uh, meet the, the uh, how do I say this, the requirements of fairness um, in terms of allowing people opportunities to, to say, what I, say what we want. You know, mm -hmm. This is what I want. What do you want? Mm -hmm. And I think that um, the tomorrow only vote does that as well. It says we get to say what we want. You don't get to say what you want. At the same time, though, I've had the opportunity to say what I want, mm -hmm. whereas the tomorrow, the indigenous residents have not. Um, I. I think that the governor very quickly came up with a novel idea of having two ballots or a checkbox on or check boxes on one ballot and I was speaking with my son just the other evening told him that you know, for me I'll go ahead and check the box that I am not an indigenous resident and then not register a vote because mm -hmm. I'm not I, I don't believe myself that I'm eligible to vote in this. It's not my decision. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, and, and I find even that opening it up with two boxes, again, is problematic because then the non-native box is irrelevant. If you were not colonized, you should not be exercising an act of decolonization. And yeah. And I appreciate your perspective that, you know, in, in this case, the indigenous voice matters, the native voice matters. And I think a lot has been done to either erase the native voice or the native identity of our people through our colonization. And so it's been a very difficult week since the Davis verdict was announced and just hearing how many of our own people don't see that, that this is not an, a, about race. This is really about righting a historical wrong. Yes. Yeah. And it's a I, human right precisely. that was taken away from us. 
Well, and I, I really wish that I were able to articulate my thoughts on it better. Um, given more time, I probably could. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate your thoughts uh, today. Um, so, Wayne, do you have questions from one uh, budding economist to another oh, yeah. seasoned one? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, okay. I'll try not to embarrass myself, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, you know, if this is a kind of like addressed uh, even indirectly earlier, but um, you know, one thing we always hear from a lot of people is um, in terms of um, decolonization and independence, uh, economically, a lot of people say that we can't do that because we're so dependent on federal aid from U.S., whether it's in terms of grants or even like public assistance. And if I'm not mistaken, federal aid or or money from the federal government accounts for roughly thirty percent. Um, I think it'd be really hard to nail, really that, hard down. To nail that down. It's very hard to nail down exactly how much uh, the United States spends in Guam. I mean, they, they will say, well, we spend $800 million a year on Anderson Air Force Base. But the yeah. fact of the matter is, a lot of the stuff that falls into that budget category are wastebaskets made in Ohio. Right. You know, and exactly. desks made in Texas. And if you, None of it comes into no, the local economy. Yeah, basically. none of it enters the, particularly not the civilian economy, but even the the, the 212 square mile economy. Right. Um, and so it's really very difficult right. to nail that down as a number. Uh, right. I think that the activities of the federal government may contribute as much as 30% of the island, mm -hmm. but I think that in terms of the contribution to the civilian economy, mm -hmm. that that number would be much smaller. Really? So do you, in your estimation, I know we don't have any hard numbers, but uh, do you feel see a potential for, um, say, a rev, um, I guess revenue streams or whatever that we discussed earlier, say the potential for um, rent, charge the military rent for usage of uh, the land or uh, economic development of land released uh, from the military, or even perhaps reducing the cost of living from eliminating the Jones Act? Do you feel that, in your estimation, do you think that would that has the potential to maybe mitigate any negative impact, any loss from of a federal money? Um, I think, yes, of course. I think that the notion of uh, uh, reducing the footprint of the Department of Defense in Guam to free up what is, for all intents and purposes, unutilized land um, would be very beneficial. I mean, we, we have an awful lot of vacant land right okay. now in Guam but we're talking prime land, right. um, which is uh, better adapted to development uh, projects. Um, I think that I, I will reiterate that um, in exchange for rent from the Department of Defense, we would have to also offset that with payments for defense services. Because, mm -hmm. like I said, there's we do not have the bombs, the ships, the tanks, and the planes, um, or the infrastructure for it. Um, the release from the Jones Act becomes really a contentious issue because we're really not directly in the shipping lanes, the Trans-Pacific shipping lanes. There would be um, several hundred miles that ships would have to go out of their way if they are engaged in uh, Asian-American trade in order to make a port call in Guam. Um, I think that if we were to take on a warehousing and transportation hub um, um, characteristic, then that would provide more incentive 
to spend the extra fuel and the extra time to come to Guam and to drop things off and to pick things up. I also think that the cost of shipping here uh, under the Jones Act, well, the Jones Act has a number of uh, uh, controls on who qualifies. Uh, as an aside, I've always gotten a kick out of the fact that the Jones Act is considered part of the coastwise laws of the United States, and I don't know how you get much less coastwise <laughs> than we are. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, by and large, these vessels are U.S. hold, U.S. flagged vessels. Uh, for the longest time, they also had to be U.S. crewed vessels, but I understand that uh, there's a, a D category visa now that allows foreign um, um, sailors on these commercial vessels. Um, but the, the shipping, the shipbuilding industry in the United States has fallen dramatically over the course of the last 40 years, 50 years, as shipbuilding in Asia and in parts of Europe have really taken off. Um, I, I mean, we have ship repair facility here, which was spun off as a part of BRAC 95. Um, and the Navy really now prefers to have their maintenance and repairs done in South Korea um, because it's less expensive. Mm. Right. Um, so building the ships, U.S. hold vessels are very expensive. I mean, you've got union labor. Right. You've got a much reduced and therefore much less efficient shipbuilding capacity in the shipyards in the U.S. Um, also, some of the constraints on what it takes to be a U.S. flagged vessel uh, makes shipping more expensive for us as well. Um, it's kind of interesting. The history is that Matson used to run a turnaround, turnaround route from Hawaii to Guam, where they would come out on relatively small vessels, both um, um, containerized and uncontainerized vessels, um, come out to Guam full and then go back empty and so the cost for the full circuit of the journey had to be borne in the shipping cost for the goods that were brought to Guam. Mm -hmm. Then um, American President Lines entered the market later, and they were doing through shipping. They were coming to Guam, dropping uh, cargo, and then carrying more cargo on to Asia. And they could use larger vessels, which were more efficient, carrying more goods, which, of course, was... Um, profitable for them, and they also had a backhaul. So for all intents and purposes, they could ship to Guam at a much lower rate than Matson, and this created some issues with, uh, even defense issues in terms of um, um, uh, shipping uh, of goods, and providing uh, what is called um, essential services. I think it's essential shipping services, um, yeah, which is basically required by the U.S. Postal Service. Um, but back in the late 60s, when APL started serving the market, the Federal Maritime Commission said, wait a minute, you're going to force Matson out of the market, and Matson relies in large part on this market. Mm -hmm. And so what we want you two companies to do is get together and decide how what your shipping rates to Guam are going to be. Wow. Oh, wow. And that's how 
the route to Guam ends up subsidizing APLs and uh, American President lines, U.S. lines, wh whichever is the second or the third uh, party serving Guam, it allows them to subsidize their routes to Asia with uh, shipping rates to Guam. Wow. Um, the late Gordon Mayhew made up big deal out of this when he was a senator in that you could load two identical containers full of rice on a vessel in Oakland and ship drop ship one to Guam and the shipping cost was about $5,500 and the second one you would carry further to Hong Kong and the shipping cost would be about $2,000 oh. wow. so a lot of uh, I mean Guam, in a sense, subsidized shipping to Hong Kong. Right. Um, wow. And on that, or in that vein, so if Guam did sort of re-envision where it got its goods and were able to welcome other ships from Asia, for example, people will often say that they won't come to Guam because they don't, what would then fill the containers on the way back? What would make it worth it for them? And so one of the things that I've heard is that could Guam like take some of its waste or recyclable products and have that be shipped to places like China that could then reuse that in mm. their industries. Uh, for example, we're notorious for our junk cars or things that we're not able to recycle locally because we don't have the facilities for it. Well, I think from time to time we actually do ship a lot of our refuse off of the island. Much um, as three or four years ago, there was a major movement to go around and get all the junk cars off the streets and out of people's yards um, throughout the island. And those uh, cars were being compacted and put on vessels for shipment to South Korea, where the steel was recycled. There are some issues with that because of the other uh, contaminants that exist in automobiles. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that there is other shipment of uh, recyclable goods from Guam. And my understanding is that those are primarily handled by foreign vessels. But I don't think that that's going to be enough volume to mm -hmm. offset the need to bring goods into Guam. I think, though, that if we could serve as kind of a pre-positioning pre point for shipments of goods from the Americas to Asia, then that would answer the concern that ships would no longer come here. And I think also, I mean, it points to the bigger conversation as well about the need to not rely so heavily on ships for particularly food. Uh, and, you know, just the reminder that within 70 years, we've become very reliant on them for food. But prior to that, we supplied all of our own food. So would you be able to speak to that? Is that still a viable option for Guam to pursue uh, agricultural development? Well, among other things, you have to keep in mind that Guam's population used to be much, much smaller than it is today. Yeah. Um, I believe that uh, 1950 or maybe 1948, the population was just 22,000 people. And now we're approaching 200,000 people. Mm -hmm. um, that's a lot more mouths to feed. Uh, modern farming techniques have helped offset that somewhat. Uh, 30 years ago, our, the, the uh, um, School of Agriculture at the university um, had done some research that indicated Guam was providing about 30% self-sufficiency. But again, in the last 30 years, the population has doubled. Mm -hmm. And so now we may produce 
15% of the food that's consumed here, even with improved farming technologies and so forth. But I also think that there have been more job opportunities created outside of agriculture, and so the number of people engaged in agriculture has fallen off. Mm -hmm. We also have issues with um, pests, mm -hmm. typhoons, mm -hmm. um, other tropical diseases of plants. Um, I grow hot peppers at home, and one of the problems I'm running into now is iron deficiency. <laughs> Not in myself, but in the in my plants. And so that's um I know though that there are, as you mentioned, some, you know, technologies and advancements also in farming and permaculture that could respond to some of that. So um, and I, I do see, and I'm very happy to see particularly the university and the Center for Island Sustainability really exploring these other options. Um, I've also wondered more also about sort of looking regionally at a, a closer trade network where some of that type of agricultural development or some of the things that we really don't need to get from so far away, like bananas, for example, mm -hmm. could come from Pompeii or um, Guam really reconsidering um, slaughterhouses and, and beef, right? Um, which would be much healthier, I'm sure, if we knew how the cows were being raised, for example. Mm -hmm. But are these things that you think would be viable options in an independent Guahan? Well, the idea of... Um building a piggery in Guam mm -hmm. uh, has been floated repeatedly for generations now. And it's always run into the same obstacle, which is not in my backyard. You know, um, I think that that could be overcome. Mm -hmm. I also think that the there is a lot of opportunity for agricultural development, particularly in the, the Federated States of Micronesia. Coast Rye, for instance, has a Mediterranean environment. Uh, just Monday of this week, our branch manager from Coast Fry brought in a lot of tangerines that um, they're eligible for export. But Coast Fry has fruit flies, and so they would have to do something to control those pests so that they wouldn't come into Guam. Mm -hmm. An old friend of mine um, used to do some work for the government in Yap, and the University of Hawaii wanted to bring in irradiated fruit flies that were sterilized so as to try to eliminate the fruit fly population in Yap. I don't know how that's worked out. I've lost, well, I've lost contact with him. He died. <laughs> but, um, I'm sorry. That's, uh, so am I. He was one of my best friends ever. Um, and so I think that there would have to be some changes made, but I think that if Guam were here as a market for the neighboring islands, that they would develop their agriculture. I mean, if they had a means of actually selling it and earning export income from them, I think that would be uh, a method of boosting those economies as well. 
Okay. Well, there I have many, many, many more questions. Why am I, I not surprised by that? <laughs> um, I realize we're coming up on an hour pretty soon, and maybe we can definitely have a follow-up. But one more question that I wanted to <laughs> explore, know. and then I promise... What if I don't know the answer? <laughs> I know. You're doing great, though. Uh, you have many awesome answers. Um, another thing that is brought up, regularly as well is the idea of reunification with the rest of the Marianas. And actually at the last Commission on Decolonization meeting, Mayor Melissa Savares from Dedido had uh, brought up that uh, AMIM, which is the Association of Mayors from the Mariana Islands, uh, was recently established and they did a joint resolution of all the mayors of the Marianas uh, for re towards reunification and one of their reasons was uh, economic development for the entire archipelago and particularly she brought up you know the possibilities with agriculture um, but I'm, I'm curious more generally would that also be a viable economic possibility reunification I think it would be uh, I think that even today after all these years it may not be politically viable because there's still a lot of um, how, what's the word I want? A lot of hard feelings mm -hmm. about what happened in the uh, during World War II here. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that resistance is falling by the wayside. I think that uh, the people who actually experienced those hurts uh, are many of them are no longer with us. Mm -hmm. And with that, with that, when it, when that information's passed to the second generation without them actually having experienced these things, that it doesn't mean as much. It's, it doesn't create the level of um, animosity mm -hmm. that was, um, uh, that existed in the immediate years after World War II. Um, in the last, probably three, maybe even four decades. It's a proposal that's been made by the Northern Marianas on a number mm -hmm. of occasions, but there's been um, political resistance in Guam, mm -hmm. uh, specifically for that reason. It's, uh, I don't think there was anything else. Um, the Spanish cleared out the Northern, Northern Islands. They relocated everybody to Guam um, back in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And so, Everybody's from Guam, <laughs> but um, my uh, former, my late father-in-law, um, his family was located in Sumai, and when the United States opened up the Northern Islands again in, I believe, 1910, his family moved to Saipan, mm -hmm. and then after World War One, when Japan was given administrative authority over the Northern Marianas under the League of Nations mandate. Mm -hmm. um, he was born and raised as a, as a Japanese national. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot more to that story, but um, uh, he ended up, after World War II, um, Japanese transferred him to Pohnpei because he spoke the language, had family, land, so forth, to run a tobacco plantation when the war was over and they finally got the logistics together to put people back where they belonged, they did a port call in Guam and he jumped ship. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. He happened to have a toolbox. And so he started building houses for people. Wow. Um, and, and he stayed. But then when he wanted to travel to the States to visit uh, his daughter and myself, he had a hard time getting a passport. Wow. <laughs> and um, I think that he was certainly accepted within the community, mm-hmm. but he w- was had no involvement with the the people from the Northern Marianas who were working for the Japanese during the war, mm-hmm. uh, at least not in Guam. Um, he was working for the Japanese in Pompeii. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, do, I do know there's been a lot of back and forth on yeah. this issue, and I just, you know, I just wondered, you know, how that could also maybe, because right now the U.S. military is looking at the Marianas as one, right? Their, their plans for the Marines require... Uh, both Guam and the Northern Islands. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, strategically thinking about uh, ourselves together and sort of strategizing together could really benefit us because I think we'd have more political power, obviously. But also it would allow us to kind of explore other options for economic possibility, learning from our past, yeah. right? So, uh, you know, I too, my my, fa- my father's mother is from Guam and his father is from Saipan. So I've always, you know, traveled both places very mm. much throughout my childhood. And, you know, my family is from both places. And right. that animosity we obviously don't feel within our, because we're one family. Yeah. And yeah. most of us really are. I know that for my relatives in Saipan, when I ask them about reunification today, uh, they say that they've sort of come to a certain degree in their own governance, that they worry that sort of reunifying with Guam, would that mean that because Guam is bigger and more populated, that the seat of governance would be here? And that obviously wouldn't work, right? Um, But those are all things I think that could be worked out, um, especially when you look at the way in which the federal government has violated the covenant through the federalization of labor and immigration and that has really crashed their economy Um, and then you do look at sort of the positioning of china kind of coming in now and developing a different kind of industry in the cinema and really sort of economically entering the entire region Um, I've been kind of saying, and I don't know what your thoughts on it are, but it reminds me of Japan sort of surrounding Guam before World War II and then the island being attacked. And so it does worry me that, you know, China is essentially doing the same thing today. And, you know, what then can we learn from history if we kind of look at what's happening? And, you know, China has said that they're doing this directly in response to the military buildup here. And so, um, you know, what should Guam be thinking about? And how should we see China's position economically in our region? Right now, I don't perceive China as being a particularly favorable contributor to the economies of the Northern Marianas and Palau. They've come in and taken over the tourism industry in Palau and displaced Palauans. Mm-hmm. Um, they put a lot of money into the community, but most of that has been for the benefit of the Chinese in the community. Um, there are other reasons for that as well. Palau recognized Taiwan diplomatically 
rather than China. And I knew way back when that as soon as China started looking outward, the first places they were going to provide foreign assistance was to those countries that recognized Taiwan diplomatically mm-hmm. and try to just strip them away from Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, that has not yet happened in Palau, but it's become a higher possibility. Um, I think to a lesser extent some that can be said of the Northern Marianas as well. I mean, look, we're building a, what, $8 billion uh, casino resort in Saipan. Um, that's, what, 10 times the size of Saipan's annual gross domestic product. Wow. And, you know, that's a huge investment. It's uh, kind of on a par with what the Japanese investments did here in Tuman in the late 80s and early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that was a more complicated issue than what we're seeing with China right now. Um, what does it mean for Guam? I mean, in- Well, um, we're seeing a modest number of Chinese tourists. We're not seeing much in the way of Chinese investment right now. I think we had 22,000 Chinese visitors last year out of 1.54 million visitors. Mm-hmm. Um, Japan's economy is still having difficulties. I mean, their la- their lost def- decade has been more than a quarter century not long now. Um, and we're continuing to see the number of Japanese visitors uh, decline. Uh, South Korea has picked up most of the slack from that. Um, and yet South Korea is not putting a lot of investment into Guam, at least not yet, because there are still uh, constraints within South Korea on the expatriation of investment monies. Um, wow, so I said I was only going to ask one more question, and I asked two, but thank you, and I think that this does bring us, you know, kind of full circle with, you know, the beginning of our interview where you spoke about other economic possibilities outside mm-hmm. of just tourism and defense, so mm-hmm. I greatly appreciate all that you've shared, and uh, I find it really exciting. I'm willing to take the risk <laughs> for independence <laughs> okay. and knowing that there are these other opportunities for us and ultimately the ability for us to really determine where our economy will go is exciting. So mm-hmm. thank mm-hmm. you for that. Is there anything you'd like to close with? Um, well, you've said you're willing to take the risk of independence. I'm willing to take the risk of letting somebody else decide what Guam's political status will be. Thank you. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for listening to Fanatsu and uh, to Joseph Bradley for his time uh, and Wayne Chargloff, who had to run, uh, for also joining us today. Uh, Please tune in again. Paraba ina fanmatakna yaman tomoro para tutuli takti idiretsota komo unnashon gihilutano gini minet gut niha yimanyanata jani guinezata nu yifamugo umta motna ina keke fanmanungo jani keke fanet don todo itotosiha ni manyasaga giini natano para tanat letfet na idagwahan ni todo inina senyata kosiki senyata fanlat la maulik motna fanatsu hita lat mono.